Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 93, Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock. another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. From the right side of my brain, I'm Ken Ray. And from the left side of my brain, I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log... Hey, 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 hold on. What? Ken? Hello? Hi. Hello, Ken. All right, can everybody hear you or just me? I've been carrying your, like, essence, your ka, your... Eunice around in my head since last week. No, that's, uh, that's not me, man. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Wonder who that is. Mm. Anyway, each week on Mission Log, we take apart, oh, different tellings from Star Trek. Sometimes it's TV episodes, sometimes it's cartoons. Right now, it's movies. Take apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and try to figure out whether the whole thing stands the test of time. Well, Ken, it was only logical that after uh, Star Trek Two, we should find ourselves landing at Star Trek Three. I like to do things in order. So that's where we are. And uh, as we know, at the end of Star Trek 3, we, or at the end of Star Trek 2, rather, we lost Spock, and now we get to go look for him. Thus, <laughs> the search for Spock is where we are, just in case you're, uh, you're trying to figure out the logic of it all at home. Yeah, looking for Mr. Spock, I think, was, it was an alternate title, but they decided yes. that might harken back to something a bit darker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so no, and... Uh, the Search for Spock's Gold, I think, was another one that they thought about. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and they were just like, yeah, you know what? Now let's just go. Let's, let's keep it simple. Search for Spock. Yeah. That's what we'll do. Search for Spock. Mm-hmm. And so they did. And so we will in today's mission log. But Ken, before we, uh, we do our own search for Spock and for the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein, if you'll indulge me, I've got a little trivia. Yeah, well, I've been letting you do it in my head all week, so why not? <laughs> all right. So, um, Star Trek Three got the green light the day after the Wrath of Khan opened. I mean, it, it was that fast. So, everybody loved Wrath of Khan. Nimoy loved it. Um, and he got to use a little of that leverage of all the fan love, critical love, studio love to, uh, well, to get what he wanted. Um, they killed Spock, but he came back. As long as he could direct. <laughs> so Leonard Nimoy gets his first turn in the director's chair in Star Trek Three. Um, now, there is a rumor, Ken, and I, I may have even sort of haphazardly used uh, this language last week. And I want to make sure that it's very clear. Uh, there is a rumor that Nimoy was contracted to have Spock killed in the previous movie. Um, That's not exactly how it worked out. So let me take you back a little bit to the development of Star Trek II. They figured that the best way that they could get Nimoy back for the role was to write a fabulous death scene. And they did. Um, In fact, early drafts of that movie did not have the Spock character in it at all because they just assumed that he wasn't coming back. But then they wrote this great death scene. And of course, what does an actor want but a great death scene? 
So uh, they wrote that. It was at the beginning of the movie. Then it kept getting pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. We talked about that, how they kind of teased us with that death scene early on and uh, how that actually played out. Now, as The Wrath of Khan wrapped up, they knew that it was a special movie and everybody knew that Nimoy was having fun again. So he was able to kind of leverage that positive feeling to get that uh, director's gig. So they all knew that Spock would come back as they were wrapping up the Wrath of Khan, but they didn't know how exactly. So that's where I said Harv Bennett steps in. He writes Search for Spock. He started at the end and just worked his way backwards to figure out how the uh, the pieces would come together. Now, we, wait a minute. We, I'm sorry. I'm uh, sorry. When you say he started at the end. Yeah. So he started at the end with everybody alive? He literally started at the last line of the movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And, and worked his way backwards. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, now, uh, Harv Bennett, we talk about him as being a TV producer, really known for the efficiency of production. But it's also fair to point out that in TV land and in the parlance of the industry, producer is writer. You work your way up to a producer position, usually from a writer position. So it's not out of the ordinary that he would be a writer and really take on the lion's share of the work for this movie. Um, let's talk about some of the other things that happened in this movie. George Takei said that he didn't like being called tiny, but he eventually embraced the scene where he gets to kick some ass. Um, the Grissom that we meet at the beginning of this movie, the USS Grissom, was named in honor of astronaut Virgil I. Gus Grissom. Um, Originally, so back in one of the original drafts, the Romulans were going to be the enemies. But Nimoy liked the look of the Klingons, the sort of refreshed, rebooted Klingons that we met in the motion picture. Um, and actually, there was a scene written which would have had Krug, the Klingon commander, stealing a Romulan bird of prey, thus explaining the cloaking device. Um, and I guess it's sort of like an iPad where you can reboot it. And all the computers will just show up in the Klingon language if you happen to be a bunch of Klingons on board. I was going to say, um, you can't do that with an iPad, I don't think. Well, you can't do it in Klingon, but no. you can do it in, you know, oh, French yeah. or oh, okay. Spanish. Sure. Or, yeah. Yeah. Not Klingon, though. I think that's like a iOS 9. Maybe. I think that'll come. That Although in come. the far yeah. future, people can tell us if I was right about that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a little... Um, well, it's interesting. I, I think it would have been... I, I, I agree with Nimoy. It would have been mm -hmm. confusing to have a bunch of Romulans and a bunch of Vulcans if the only yeah. difference is the yeah. uh, is the outfits and then of and course the attitude yeah. and you would end up with a maybe a tiny bit um, conflicted uh, Savic as well. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean so, to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh no, 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 no. That's fine. Um, uh, but speaking of those Klingons. Um, Christopher Lloyd, you, you have to point him out, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about how he uh, he got that role a little bit later on. Um, but also, we have the unmistakable presence and voice of John Larroquette from Night Court, of course, and many other great TV and movie roles. He plays Maltz, the second-in-command, or uh, as... The director and writer have pointed out kind of the the uh, the intellect on board the Klingon vessel. Um, a couple of other actors I'm going to point out. Alan Miller played the alien who meets McCoy in the bar back on Earth. I just think he's fantastic. He's been in about a million TV shows, and he is actually a teacher at the actor's studio. So if you think about it, in another universe, it could have been James Lipton offering a ride to Dr. McCoy. Um, we also want to point out Dame, 
Judith Anderson as the Vulcan priestess, Tular. Uh, she was nominated for an Academy Award for the film Rebecca. She also appeared in Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, she won Tony Awards. She won Emmy Awards. She was nominated for a Grammy. Um, so really, she has been nominated and associated with just about every major award there is in the performing arts. Um, she was on a very long hiatus from the business when she took the role for Star Trek. It was reportedly at the urging of her nephew, who was a fan of Star Trek, and that's why she did it. Um, Mark Leonard, we have to mention, he is back again as Sarek this time, uh, and it's the first time we've seen Sarek since the animated series. Of course, he appeared in that role one time in the original series, one time in the animated series, played a myriad of other characters, but we get him back here as Sarek. And um, Ken, I've been talking about the budgets for these movies, and we talked about how high the budget was for the motion picture, how low it was for The Wrath of Khan this one, they got a little more budget. It was made for about $16 million, but they actually had a surplus because they could use so much from the previous film in the way of costumes, sets, props, etc. So they were able to stretch that out quite a bit and uh, apply some of that to effects. Wait a minute. They had more money for this film than they had for Wrath of Khan? They sure did. It may prove what we were talking about last week. <laughs> I'm, I don't want to spoil we'll anything. I'm not, yeah, we'll I'm save not, our judgment calls for later. Huh? It, it, it's interesting to to sort of think about that now as we uh, as we go into uh, Star Trek Three. What happens in Star Trek Three? The search for Spock. Spoiler alert: They search for Spock. Background: Remember Spock? Still dead. Remember the Genesis device? Well. It worked, creating a living planet out of all the materials found in the Matara Nebula. Remember how the Genesis device could be used as a weapon? Well, the Klingons just learned that too, and they are not about to forget it at all. The Genesis planet is basically off-limits to everyone except a scientific vessel on which we reunite with Savick and Kirk's son, David. What happens? The commander of the USS Grissom allows David and Savak to beam down to Genesis to investigate the very odd life readings on the planet. Elsewhere in the galaxy, the wounded Enterprise is making its way back to Earth. It's a somber ship, and everyone is hurt from Spock's death, especially Bones, who is creeping around Spock's quarters. He, he seems to be really losing it. In yet another area of space, a group of Klingons are receiving the stolen Genesis plans from a small scout ship, just to cover their tracks, the Klingons then blow up that scout ship. Tough negotiators. The Klingon commander, Krug, sees Genesis as a weapon. It doesn't want the Federation to have exclusive rights. He then hightails it to the Genesis planet where he blows up the Grissom by accident. But David and Savick are still on the surface and they have found a Vulcan boy. Near Earth, the Enterprise limps into a space station. She'll be decommissioned which doesn't sit well with Kirk's desire to take her back to Genesis to find Spock. Later, on Earth, Kirk is visited by Sarek, who insists that Spock's katra, or soul, is still out there, probably in him. It's not in Kirk, though. It's in McCoy. Now the hunt is on to reassemble the crew, steal the Enterprise, and go back to Genesis to see if Spock's body can be reunited with his mind. In orbit of the Genesis planet... The Enterprise finds no trace of the Grissom, but they do get into a firefight with the Klingons. 
Krug outnumbers the Enterprise crew. At, well, he doesn't know it, but he's willing to gamble. With a couple of men on the planet, he orders that one of the three, Savick, David, or the Vulcan, be killed unless Kirk stands down and hands over the Enterprise. Good gamble. Kirk's got nothing to bargain with. And when a Klingon kills David, well, well, there's nothing left to do. Kirk surrenders. He expects the Klingon boarding party, but before they arrive, he sets the ship to auto-self-destruct. Now the odds are evened again, as Kirk, Scotty, McCoy, Sulu, and Chekhov watch from the surface of the Genesis planet as the exploding wreckage of the Enterprise falls out of orbit. On the planet, they meet Savick and the Vulcan. He's Spock, kind of. No memories at all, and his body is rapidly aging just like the planet. The whole place is falling apart. The Klingon landing party send the others back to their ship while Kirk is left to face Krug alone. Short version of the fight, Kirk wins. Okay, so in a stolen ship, the Enterprise crew are off to Vulcan. It's a place full of mystery as they go to the peak of Mount Silea and encounter the High Priestess, who warns that what they are about to do fuse the memories of Spock from McCoy's brain into his empty body is rarely ever done. There being a human involved only increases the risk. They go ahead with the procedure, and what seems like hours and hours later, a robed figure stands. It's Spock. He turns back to reveal himself and recognize that Jim is his friend, who sacrificed so much because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. Now, I don't know, John, did you watch the, uh, the uh, nice job, by the way. I'm sorry. No, thank you. Because you always tell me nice job, and I tell you about like 50% of the time. So way to go, <laughs> way to go you. I appreciate um, it. I really tried to condense it down. Yeah. You know. So I got a question. Did you watch the um, the theatrical release or the director's cup that's uh, cut rather that's made up in my head? Well, <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I actually, I'm pretty sure that I watched the theatrical All release. Right, yeah. You know, we, if I spend too much time in your head watching various cuts, various editions, it gets very confusing. Yeah, I'm not convinced it wasn't you. Anyway. Um, yeah, so when Jim says, because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many, mm-hmm. uh, in the director's cut in my head, uh, Sarek was on the other side going, hey, look, I just got his brain back in. Okay, don't go screwing with it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Hey, 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 stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> don't not, don't not yet. play with that. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of Sarek, yeah, I, I mean, it was really great to see Mark Leonard back because he's just so good and, and he has such such gravitas, such believability in the role. And he really seems at the beginning of this movie when he visits Kirk in his apartment that he is going to throw a Vulcan hissy fit. Yeah, I, I, you're, <laughs> you know? you're not wrong. Although it is interesting, um, the most fatherly uh, Sarek has ever been towards Spock is when Spock's dead. Well, yeah, you can't let Spock see that. <laughs> of course not, Ken. Yeah. If he, you, know? you know, might bring him back to life. Like, right up until right up until the part where, where Spock is standing there in front of him, right? Because mm-hmm. the high priestess of Vulcan is like, uh, you know, what you're asking here is kind of weird. And he's like, it's my son. Uh, my logic <laughs> is gone with my son. Oh, you're awake. <clears throat> going to get that haircut sometime soon or what mister <laughs> that's, yeah. my, that's my imitation of, of of their alone time yeah well you know that's always been interesting about the vulcans as we've talked about on mission log so many times is that you kind of get to bend the rules a little with those characters very often because 
there's always the, the sort of the seething emotion underneath yeah. that they're constantly trying to not only repress, but justify their own motivations. You know, it's like, well, uh, I, I realize that uh, I'm totally acting on emotion here, but I'm just going to come out with the logical answer for what I'm doing. They're, yeah. they're brilliant at backing themselves into a logical justification for whatever it is is expedient at that moment. Now, I got to say, if you're working with an organization like Starfleet or working around an organization like Starfleet, it's not a bad trait to have because, well, in Star Trek 2, uh, David Marcus was wrong about Starfleet. They are not the strictly militaristic bunch of bureaucrats that he suspected and feared. Right. right. Um, they really are a bunch of tools in this movie, though. I mean, they are seriously <laughs> just a bunch of jerks. Starfleet is just Starfleet management. So, so, so they get back from this mission, which, if we remember, was supposed to be a training mission, right? Yeah. And yeah. a shakedown mission. We don't know how long it's been, although most everybody's been transferred off, so I guess it's been a while. And they get back, and Starfleet's like, hey, good to see you. By the way, don't talk about anything that happened on your last mission. Mm. Oh, and by the way, Jim... We're we're gonna uh, stow the Enterprise. We're, we're mothballing yeah. it. We are eighty sixing this ship, and then after years of service, and you know, with the chance that Spock might pull through, um, being dead, um, <laughs> Kurt goes, "Hey, so you know that ship that you're not using anymore? Can I have it? Just you know to go do this thing?" And they're like, "Yeah, no, no, you absolutely cannot use that ship that we are just gonna leave sitting there." No, yeah. you can't. Because you're one of my best officers. By the way, we're not going to tell you what you're doing next. We're not even going to tell you if you're doing anything next. Oh, and then there are the secret Starfleet um, security. Um, well, the word that I have down here is now a dirty word. I was going to use the word for the late 20s, early 30s uh, slang for a detective. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. You got a bunch of you know, Starfleet uh, early 20th century detectives. Right, walking around right. secretly just like listening in on stuff like oh hey by the way dr mccoy be quiet because i'm secret starfleet police you know yeah. it's i mean they, yeah. it really is just kind of a not scary like some tellings about starfleet that we may or may not see somewhere down the road but i mean they it's it's really not a great organization in this um in this particular movie well, no, it's really troubling. And I, and I think we'll come back to that again uh, momentarily. But, yeah, Admiral Morrow, who tells Kirk, like, look, I, I, your career is all about your rationality and, and I respect you. But no, no, you can't have a ship. You can't go do what you need to do. Yeah. Um, I'm not uh, convinced that Morrow actually knows Kirk, though, because since when is Kirk's career all about rationality? Yeah, well, is he that's... is he confusing his file with Spock's file out of curiosity? Right. Well, I, I think Kirk may be uh, tampering with the uh, the mission log on the ship. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good point. Oh wow, they get mission log on the Enterprise. Sweet. Mm -hmm. They and, do. It they makes do. me a tiny bit nervous. I didn't know. <laughs> oh, fingers crossed. They like it. Anyway. Um, but yeah, yeah. We, there's just a lot about Starfleet that makes it not a necessarily an organization you'd want to work for. Certainly not in the higher levels. Which we learn. We learn what happens when you become a commodore or an admiral. Uh, yeah. It's just no good. No yeah. Good at all. Just ask the motion picture, Kirk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's interesting. So I, I said that I wanted to come back to the uh, the discussion about Christopher Lloyd. Uh, Krug, Commander Krug, um, has seriously got a bug up his ass about Genesis. Um, yeah, you know, he sees the weaponry of it, as did Khan. Um, but he's really offended at the idea that the Federation could make planets where people could relax and enjoy themselves. Um, and I kept thinking, well, isn't that a good thing? Because the Klingons could do it, too. I don't, and, I, don't, you know. I don't think it upset him that 
there was a place that people could relax. I think it upset him that his second or third in command, I'm not sure which one he was mm-hmm. at that point, but I think it upset him that that's all the guy could see. Like, oh, wow, they can make planets. And he's like, yeah, right, they can make planets. Like, I can make eggs. Get out of here, you idiot. <laughs> this is about destroying, okay? We are here. I mean, that's what that's what it was about to him. I think, I think the fact that his, you know, that his underling on this warship was thinking, oh, look, land, as opposed to, oh, look, the ability to destroy land. That, yeah. that was yeah, the yeah. impression that I got. Not so much that I think he would be fine, you know, going with Valkyries one day. Whoops, maybe not. <laughs> Wasn't that her name? Yeah. His wife that he killed, or his lover that he killed right. at the beginning right. of the uh, at the beginning of the movie. So very sad. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. kind of. Yeah, that that was um, yeah that, that that was rough. Um, I would have hoped that she would have seen that coming early in their relationship and uh, just not stayed with him. Uh, she seemed like a nice lady, so um, I felt bad for her. All right, we need to come back to all of this, though. I don't think okay. she had any problem dying, but no, we'll, we'll no, come back well, to all of it. And, but those are those poor other guys, though, on the ship. Oh but, yeah, yeah, they were uh, hosed, but yeah, yeah it yeah. serves them right because they were working against the Federation apparently, and yeah, they didn't no. look cling on to me. No, no, no. But uh, Christopher Lloyd is awesome. He's just great. And and I think it's worth remembering that this is Christopher Lloyd, you know, at the time that people knew him as Jim from Taxi and Max from One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. He was not yet Doc Brown Christopher Lloyd. That was still, you know, a year to come. Um, He's so good in this and so inhabits that role. Leonard Nimoy was a fan, and that's why he put him in this movie. Um, interesting that uh, Commander Krug says he wanted prisoners. I thought Kirk said that Klingons don't take prisoners in the last movie. Um, but I have to say that, you know, this is the movie where I actually started to become interested in Klingons. Um, I, I have liked other actors who have played Klingons. I liked um, John Colicost very much from the original series. But um, but this one, I, there's something about Christopher Lloyd that's so vibrant and so interesting to watch, even under all that makeup. Um, and it, the little the banter that he has with John Larroquette and the other Klingons on board, I thought was really fantastic. Well, I mean, you say this is where you start to become interested in the Klingons. This is actually where the Klingons become interesting. Well, I mean, that the has Klingons. To do with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I mean, I mean, they're like. The Klingons are being codified in this movie, and it's kind of interesting that they're doing that now because the Klingons have existed as a race in popular culture by the time this movie comes out for 17 or 18 years. I don't know when they first uh, came on in the original series, but they were always – I mean, we talked about it. They were always kind of like uh, schemers. They were, they were going to try to get it over on you. That was pretty much what they were going to do. Kind of militaristic, but mostly mm-hmm. um, jerks. Mostly just trying to get the upper hand on whoever their enemy was. And all of a sudden, in this movie, yeah. uh, they sail in with... Um, it's hard to call it an ethos. They sail in with a code. I mean, they are mm-hmm. they are now a warrior race. They're not just a race of people that'll you know fight you if they have to. I mean, they are they're they're Spartan in a way, but but uh, you know times ten. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, or maybe yeah. times eight. I, you know, I don't want to slight the Spartans that much, but uh, I mean, they're <laughs> right. uh, they're 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 a very different race than we've seen before, um, both physically, with the exception of the uh, their five minutes on screen in Star Trek uh, the uh, motion picture. Yeah, they're they're a very different race uh, physically and and in their um in their sort of cultural makeup. It seems right. Yeah, very true. Um, 
we have to also address when it comes to casting here, kind of the kind of the elephant in the room, um, which is Robin Curtis, i.e. not Kirstie Alley playing Savick. Um, I, I want to like her. And, and I'm sure that separated from this movie that she is a fine human being and a fine actress. Um, it just seemed like a bad choice in casting and directing what we get out of Savick this time around. Um, Kirstie Alley did not want to be typecast for better or for worse. She made that decision. And um, I feel like kind of the, the texture and the nuance of the Savick character that we started to get and seemed so promising in The Wrath of Khan just does not happen goes nowhere in this movie yeah and she's not given a lot to do honestly no. except for the uh except for the pawn farm moment mm-hmm. um and i guess yeah kirstie alley probably would have consoled kirk a little bit better i don't know it's weird because she didn't play her forever like like think if somebody else had come in to play scotty or think if somebody else had come in to play spock in the original mm-hmm. tellings right i mean there's mm-hmm. no way they would hold up i mean you can almost forgive you can't really forgive kirstie alley for not wanting to do it because there's a difference between being typecast and playing the same character again right it, right. it seems but um you're right she's nowhere near as good as kirstie alley was in that role but I mean, luckily, the role didn't demand much. I guess that would be the best way to say it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you mentioned that, you know, uh, uh, Savick totally pon-fard Spock, you know, (laughs) just just right then, right there. Okay, did she? um, Because, correct me if I'm wrong, she'd have had to do that like four more times during the the movie. (laughs) Hey, well, remember that. Remember that (laughs) mention because I'm going to come back to that in the Uh, next episode of Mission Log. Okay. There's a little unfinished business there that we will discuss. Okay. Well, wait week. a minute. You remember it because you're the one bringing it up. <laughs> All right. I will. Don't I don't will. don't lay your stuff on me, man. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> a little surprise that they used the term "funny farm." Uh, really, you know that I probably would not be a, a line written today, but I do love the line of Kirk saying to McCoy, "How many fingers am I holding up?" As he gives the Vulcan salute. Hilarious. Inspired. I love that. McCoy didn't know yet what was going on exactly, though, right? No, no. Yeah, I mean, he's almost like the Richard Dreyfuss character in Close Encounters. He knows he's got to get someplace, but he doesn't know why exactly. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it is it is a cute it's a cute like thing for us, and it's wonderful actually when he finds out that he's actually carrying around Spock's, you know, essence in right. his head. Um, but yeah, we actually we, so we didn't know. Uh, well, so. Did Kirk even know? Oh, he knew he had to take him to Mount Salea, but did he know anything about the ritual? No, no, not right. at all. Just something would happen. <laughs> Just something would happen. <laughs> something not, will happen. I'm not yeah. going to tell you what it's going to be. Mostly right. because, says you know, Sarah in his much better voice than I'm doing right now, I'm not going to tell you because mostly, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, don't, don't worry. It just it, it's it's Vulcan mystical stuff. Don't don't you worry your pretty little head over it. Okay. Th- then he knows it's going to work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, and speaking of which, that that is a ritual that has not been done in a very long time. Right. So uh, how Sarek was so sure that, that Spock would have left the Katra anyway, if no one ever does this anymore. And uh, and then Sarek admitting sort of a crack in his logical exterior. It's like, well, uh, this thing that never gets done, I don't know if my son prepared it, and I'm not myself right now anyway. But you should totally go do this. Well, we're hearing two different things. I mean, apparently every Vulcan does sort of implant themselves into somebody else's head as death is coming. That is what mm-hmm. uh, Sarek says. 
But then um, the high priestess says, we, we haven't really tried to put them back together with their body in quite a while. <laughs> so mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Is it really mm-hmm. just like punishment? I mean, as as McCoy said, it's, you know, punishment for all those arguments I won or punishment <laughs> right, for all right. the arguments he lost. I mean, is that really what it is? Does a Vulcan not find his best friend, but find his worst enemy and be like, yeah, yeah, I'm really not feeling well. Hey, before I go and then, you know, just like stick themselves inside somebody else's head. Um, here's, here's my version of, uh, the alternate universe version of Journey to Babel. Okay. And it's, uh, Sarek dies while in sick bay and he leaves his Katra in McCoy. And McCoy says to Spock, uh, your father just died, but I think he left a, a part of him in my mind. And Spock goes, oh, yeah, it's too bad. <laughs> see you later. Yeah, see ya. No, but then, <laughs> I got a ship to run. Okay, but here's how, here's how it plays out then to me. Um, uh-huh. And uh, so at the, uh, they, the he goes ahead and takes him to Mount Salaya, and then they separate him. And then twenty years later, when they make Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan, instead of the lovely ending where Kirk says, "I feel young," yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a Bones going, "Here we go again." <laughs> As the longest walk for a payoff. I, I mean, right. in Star Trek, I mean that's just that. Right. Right. Wow, what's he even talking about? I have no idea. Yeah, right. I gotta say, we we. Okay, we're sort of making fun of this movie, and I don't know if we're going to keep doing that, and I don't know if we should. Um, There is one thing sort of in the stuff's getting real uh, category, Uh which is weird Uh because this is not a movie where a lot of stuff gets real. Um, We had this in Star Trek, uh, the motion picture, when people were transporting over because the transporter, you know, it's like it's like getting in the car, which almost never goes wrong. (laughs) But of course, sometimes it does. (laughs) Until it does. And it turns out it does with the transporter as well. So that's sort of like, wow, stuff's getting real, right? And then eh, Star Trek Two, well, Spock dies, so stuff's getting real. And Star Trek Three, after threatening to do it so many times, uh, Kirk finally blows up the Enterprise. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, well, it's interesting to me that you would build a starship and then pack it with explosives. You know, that um, doesn't seem well, like. I, I understand putting weapons on there, but hey, just I, I, would you really be able to sleep well at night in your cabin, knowing that in the ceiling above you there, there's like just loads and loads of C four ready to blow if somebody gives the word? Klingons and Romulans, Klingons and Romulans. Seriously, you can't let a ship fall into enemy hands, right? I mean, where you're talking about, where you're literally talking about the fate of the Federation. Well, it's still the Federation is not necessarily a, a war machine. It is a uh, an exploratory scientific organization. Okay, so you, what you thought that Kirk was just making it up all the time that he could blow up the Enterprise? No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I I know that he could. I, I know that he couldn't. I I it just. I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't know that we build, say, like battleships and aircraft carriers today full of explosives with the intention of using that to blow one up. I know you can scuttle a submarine. Yeah. You know. Well, think of it but, like that. Uh, I mean, we've likened, okay. we've likened the Enterprise to a submarine plenty of times. You know, a, yeah, a yeah. balance of terror is a perfect, perfect, perfect example of when we've thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. Although there was certainly a certain amount of uh, submarine battle in uh, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. They couldn't oh, see. Sure. They were you know, floating on different levels, but they knew they were there. Um, and, I mean, that doesn't strike me. <laughs> I mean, only because we've talked about it so many times. No, the, yeah, re- yeah, the, yeah. the real part is they actually finally did it, which had to have been. I mean, I saw the movie in the theater, but I was not 17, 18 years invested. I wasn't even 17 years old yet when this movie came out. Um, mm-hmm. It had to have been just honestly a truly jarring thing for people who had watched since the very first episode back in 66 oh, uh, yeah. to, to know that the Enterprise, the Enterprise, retrofit aside, the Enterprise is gone. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's incredibly dramatic and, and it's, it still holds up as a great dramatic scene in that movie. Maybe not quite as gut wrenching as the death of Spock, but I, I kept asking myself this, you know, even when they get to Mount Soleil, even when they put Spock and McCoy through this ritual, what if it hadn't worked? Because Kirk still stole the ship and he still blew it up. Um, you know, that's he's still got a lot, of ans- a lot to answer for. He's lucky that it worked out. Again, Kirk got very, very lucky because apparently this ritual is, is never done anymore. But hey, this one worked and it worked with a human. So I have to ask myself, will there be a whole lot more of this ritual on Vulcan now? Um, and is this the feature of being Vulcan that the Federation can now exploit? Well, we can't just pour people back into the transporter anymore, so I guess maybe we'll have to. <laughs> I guess so. Well, we found Spock, but is there meaning we can take from the search for Spock? So let's go ahead and dispense with an easy lesson um, in this movie. Are an easy lesson, I think, presented by this movie. Don't be fooled by appearances. Um, not unlike one of the messages of Star Trek II, middle-aged is just, you know, an age. Everyone assumes that this old ship and this old crew are nearing their end. Um, and so they, they, they kind of don't take them seriously. They don't take their desire to go there seriously. They don't take their ability to go there seriously. I mean, Kirk's been, you know, ranting to everyone about needing to go there. And then he's like, okay, I won't. Everybody's like, well, of course he won't, because look at him. I mean, he's yeah. he's as reliable as the Reliant. There's no way he's going to just suddenly <laughs> do something unexpected. Um, so maybe people shouldn't just you know be uh, fooled by appearances. Witness, you know, what happens when you call Sulu tiny. He will take down a David Prowse looking dude <laughs> and, like, know, and put him in the wall. And 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 he is a he is a smaller man than David Prowse or than, than that guy who yep. called him tiny. Um, you know, don't be fooled by appearances. Simple, simple lesson, though. But it's really interesting because, you know, uh, when I saw this movie, I was probably 12. And I didn't think about the crew as being old. I, I thought about them as being the heroes of the movie. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe as I get older and, and now I can kind of look at it like, okay, well, here is the change they were addressing. But I think at the time I just thought, like, well, it, it's Captain Kirk. It doesn't matter how old he is. You yeah, know, I don't. I don't really expect a lot of twelve-year-olds to well, about that, though. I mean, I know, but, but right. even then, like, like you have that scene with Uhura and and Mister Adventure, played by uh, Scott McGinnis, sitting at the transporter console, going like, "Well, well, maybe a quiet job is okay for you, for somebody your age at the end of her career." But I want to get out there. I want adventure. Twelve-year-old me was going, "This guy's a jerk." <laughs> You know, and well, you know that he's about to get, you know, get his comeuppance from Uhura and he deserves it. <laughs> so I, I, I you know, I, I liked all of that. I, and I love that we get to see, you know, our heroes again, just being themselves no matter what the age is. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I agree. It's uh, do not be fooled by their appearance for sure. Can we talk about uh, a little bit more of the, just the idea of Kirk stealing the Enterprise in the first place? Because I, I have to wonder if this is the most reckless thing he has ever done. Hmm. You know, I, you say, say you uproot a civilization that worships uh, a robot god. Okay, <laughs> that, you know, maybe, maybe every Starfleet captain goes through that. Right. Okay. Right. 
but to actually steal a starship right under the nose of Starfleet Command. Um, yeah, he loves his friend Spock, but would Kirk from the original series have done this? Is he too emotionally compromised uh, because of Spock's death? I really have to wonder, you know? Well, somebody said on uh, on Twitter, um, if you can watch Kirk's eulogy for Spock in Star Trek II without shedding a tear, uh, mm-hmm. that you you may have copper flowing through your veins. I remember that, yes. Um, it's possible that I have seen Star Trek II too many times, but that scene does not make me cry anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I did, however, come close to tearing up at some place in Star Trek Three. actually. Uh, when the captain of the Excelsior tells Kirk, as he's stealing the Enterprise, that if he goes through with it, if he steals the Enterprise, they will never let him sit in that chair again. To this point, all Kirk has wanted was to be a starship captain. There were certainly times that he did not know that, the beginning of the motion picture, the beginning of Star Trek II. He's let himself be promoted out of being a starship captain. But we've all always known that all he wants to be is a starship captain. And now, all he wants to do is save his friend. Or, I mean, really, all he wants to do is try to save his friend, since he doesn't know for sure that he's going to be able to save his friend. But if he doesn't try, he's nothing. Mm-hmm. And so holding on to, you know, holding on to being a starship captain or holding on to his admiralty or, you know, whatever doesn't matter anymore. So to answer your question, is this something that Kirk from the original series would do? This is Kirk from the original series, but I mean, he's older, you know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? This is not Chris Pine. And so we don't, yeah, we yeah. don't ask the question, well, would the original Kirk do this? I mean, this is actually the original Kirk, but he's older. And honestly, he's just had his butt kicked by Starfleet. He's just been told, yeah, you know, you're good, okay? You're the best, okay? But you don't get your ship anymore, and you don't get to go save your friend. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's hard for me to believe that the original series Kirk would have stood by for that. I mean, think about all the times he flouted the rules or bent the rules. I mean, even in, even, you know, they even talked about it all through the motion, uh, I'm sorry, the Wrath of Khan. He changed the rules because he doesn't like to lose. And so... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is still this is absolutely an original series thing for Kirk to do, but it's original series Kirk, you know, 17, 18 years into being original series Kirk. Sure, sure, sure. Well, yeah, and, and without the, I guess, without the, the stakes being his command anymore. Right. You know, if we just assume that he doesn't care. Well, I, I don't you know? think it's that he doesn't care. I think he would have been happy to spend the rest of his career in Starfleet doing Starfleet-y things. But, you know, I mean, he now has something this I mean, this is grown up Kirk yeah. <laughs> in some well, ways. Well, yeah. And that, that's, yeah, that's when the, the character trumps the, the title or the yeah. position at this point. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I liked here is that in addition to a little more development and the Kirk character, I think we really start to see the rest of the crew as individuals. You know, they, they've had moments, you know, we, everybody remembers shirtless Sulu with the, the rapier. Um, and we give a lot of lip service to that kind of stuff and how important Uhura was and how Sulu stood out. Um, but now we actually dedicate time to developing everyone individually. And, and it works. It, it really works here for those mo- moments. You know, it's nice to take the time to see those moments. And I think that this, as you were saying with the Klingon sort of getting codified in this movie, I think this movie also helps to cement our crew characters in our heads as well. Everybody gets their moment to shine. And it, it really plays kind of wonderfully in the movie. Even if the movie has flaws, we get to step back a little bit and just let, you know, Sulu have his moment kicking David Prowse's, who's not really David <laughs> Prowse's butt. Right. Um, I think it was actually and, Peter Mayhew. 
Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. But, you know, how I mentioned uh, back when we were doing the original series that one of the biggest, uh, I think, flaws of the original series is that we didn't get more of those characters. They're so indelible in our heads. But when you go back and watch it, you go like, oh, we really didn't get much out of them at all. It's only when we get to the movies that they do get to stand out and we kind of retcon that in our minds as to what these characters are, what they're like, and what they stand for. Mm. So this movie does a nice job of that, a kind of bookending you know, everything about those characters. We do that with the Klingons too, don't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. Although it's possible that later properties add to that with the Klingons. But, mm-hmm. I mean, the movies, certainly all of a sudden in Star Trek Three, we've got – I mean, the Klingons are practically a new race. I mean, yeah. we, we know them as the enemy, and so we are automatically expect them to be the enemy. But, I mean, they um, – yeah, the movie actually uh, – I don't know if I'd go so far as – it defines them. It might even actually – you know, it might actually retcon them now that you mm-hmm. now that you put it that way. It might uh, retcon an entire alien race. Yeah, right, right. Um, speaking of standouts, I, I think the bar scene with McCoy is just wonderful. Um, I, I mentioned the actor who plays the alien in that. Uh, but it is just a weird, weird scene. Um, McCoy is offering money to the alien. Not uh, not thanks, not a pat on the back, not, not supplies, not sorry and brandy, but money. Um, and I also find it very interesting now that Starfleet has – basically these cops everywhere who are listening in on what you're saying. Yeah. That's, 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 that's what I was saying earlier about yeah. Starfleet being just a terrible, terrible organization. <laughs> yeah. That's a little worrisome. Although he did offer him a ride home. Let's be fair. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of nice. He, he offered him a lift before throwing him in the, uh, the funny farm. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to use a, a mm. more, a more futuristic term. Yeah. The, the booby hatch. <laughs> right. 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 Um, one of the central tenets of this movie, the premise that I, I guess I have such a big, big problem with, and I just, I have to get it out of the way here is the mind body dualism. That is the, the central idea here that Spock's body is one thing, but his mind, his soul is something else. And I, I just figured that for the purposes of this being a movie, we have to wave it off as sci-fi magic. Um, it doesn't work for us in our world, but Vulcan is mystical and magic, so it, it works for them. Um, well, and it, I think if you... Uh-huh. It's been established that that will work with the Vulcans, though, because think about the infinite Vulcan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They just moved, moved some of his mind over to the gigantic Spock 2. Right, and there's a little bit of brain, brain, what is brain to it as well, although I can't mm-hmm. remember, they actually took out his brain, didn't they? He had mm, no, yeah, did he yeah, have no did. brain or did he have no mind? He had no physical brain, right? Yeah, he had no physical brain. Just enough did. brain to hook up a remote control car. Right, <laughs> right. that's all you need, really. <laughs> to drive him around. How did Mego never make one of those, by the way? Oh, I'd, they should have. They I'd, should. I'd buy one of those and keep it in yeah. the original box, and then I'd buy another one to play with. Well, I I figured that you might run into a problem because let's say that even a very small percentage of the Vulcans who ever lived transferred their Katras into other beings, other vessels. Um, How many souls do we have to keep around, really? Because there's probably a lot of dusting involved, uh, probably a lot of maintenance involved. How much room do they take up? Um, It's a cool idea. You know, if you could actually collate everything that was known and thought 
by the greats of history. I mean, if you could do that on Earth, it, you'd go with Einstein and Jefferson and Socrates and you consult with them when needed. But still, it just seems like they have to go somewhere. And even if we have the idea that before a Vulcan dies, he just sort of puts his memories, his, his essence, his mind into somebody else. Well, what about when that somebody else dies and then puts their mind? Now, now you've got two minds going into the next guy or next woman who's got to carry this around. It seems like you're really just opening up a huge can of worms by, uh, by doing this. I, I don't want to say what I'm going to say next. Oh, go ahead and say it. You know you want to say it. Dune. <laughs> this, okay. this is addressed. This is addressed, and I won't uh-huh. say how, and I won't say by whom, and I won't mm-hmm. say to what end. In case somebody listening is working their way through the Dune books right now, and you never know when that's going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, this this idea is, I mean, it is kind of addressed. It, it is sort of interesting, though. I mean, the idea that you end up with like twenty people and one guy, and then they become like the high priest. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't know. That's actually interesting. And yeah. I'm going to stop right there because I will start talking about yet another science fiction, uh, science fiction <laughs> thing. And that's not what we're doing today. So please, okay. please, please continue. All right. Well, uh, so here's the thing then. Kirk is taking a huge leap of faith. And I, I still have to wonder, like, I, I, I like your description about how this is TOS Kirk. The, the stakes are different. And his position is different. What he cares about is different. But it is TOS Kirk. But I do have to wonder if he would have done this in other situations. So Admiral Morrow praises Kirk's rationality, which I guess we just kick right out of the window. You know, if if you look at Kirk's record, it's not always full of rationality. Um, But I do have to wonder if the circumstances have been different. And if, uh, if Bones had come to Kirk and said... This is what I need you to do. And uh, I know it's hard to believe, but you have to do it. Would Kirk actually have made those kinds of risks and and put the rest of his crew at risk? Now, they volunteered. I get it. But um, he did potentially compromise their careers, their futures, their livelihoods. And I have to ask myself, you know, seriously, did Kirk learn anything from the Wrath of Khan? You know, he says that he cheated death. He patted himself on the back for his ingenuity. And now it seems like he's done it again. You know, I I like the idea that he fights for life. But the premise, going back to my whole problem with mind-body dualism, the premise is crazy. And I feel like he would have never allowed one of his own crew to take on that same mission. I I feel like in some ways he, he lost that lesson from the Wrath of Khan. You know, sure, time has passed, and he's not the same person he was 20 years ago necessarily, but he still wins in this. He still wins because he just sort of didn't accept the answer. Well, I mean, He didn't there, accept death as being final. Well, there are a couple of things going on. First of all, he did accept death as final until somebody came to him and said, whoa, 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 death, death is not final in this case. Normally, Kirk, I'd be right there with you, says, you know, Sarek. But um, but not this time. This time it turns out uh, you, in fact, you're not cheating death. You are going to have to cheat the Federation or you're going to have to cheat Starfleet on this one, but you're not cheating death. I mean, Kirk was willing to let this go. This was not like somebody just came to him and said, hey, we got to go do this thing. Well, I mean, it is because it was Sarek. But I mean, Sarek, I mean, Vulcans are mystics. 
And, yeah. and we may not like that, especially because they're so logical and we're supposed to think of them as just, you know, pure logic. Right. I think I joked uh, during the the podcast for the motion picture that if V'ger were coming straight for a Vulcan, the Vulcans would be like, <laughs> right. well, yeah, it was going to happen sometime, yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Right. And so, I mean, but that's where you get Sarek's whole thing about, you know, logic flying out the window where his, where his mm-hmm. son is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um. You're almost asking an unfair question, I think. Something outside of Kirk has come and said, this is beatable. It's very different than everything Kirk has done. We actually have a more melancholy, more self-reflective Kirk at the beginning of this movie than we had at the beginning of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes away quickly because somebody gives him a mission, and that's very much Kirk, right? Oh, 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 I got something I can do. Excellent. Because he was sitting there like... A, my kid left and the training crew left and my friend's dead and my other friend's kind of, you know, fruity as a nutcake. Right. And, uh, and I don't, I don't know what to do right now. And he has to sort of sit with that, you know, bit of bummer for maybe 15 minutes of the movie because then Sarah comes in and says, there is something you can do. Well, well that's what I mean. He, he's got the bummer for 15 minutes, but it is sort of like, um, okay, remember that time when I thought my entire crew was dead when I did the Kobayashi Maru, but uh, I cheated so I didn't have to face that? And then remember that time that I thought my best friend was dead after this mission went horrifically wrong, and I had to, I had to let that sit with me for a while? Well, guess what? I don't have to because my friend's not dead. Right. We brought him back. All right. Help me out. Which was the last blockbuster movie that that was the hero for the past 18 years just dealing with the fact that life sucks and then you die. I mean, that's not going to happen in this. I mean, no, you're, I know. you're really, I, I, I think I you might be being a tiny bit unfair in your expectations uh, for this movie, but we'll probably end up circling back around to that. Yeah. Um, sort of along those same lines though. So Savick says that David is very human, like his father, um, though he, he did something interesting. He used proto matter, an unstable, uh, something element, I think she says, although I don't know where it is on the periodic table. Although <laughs> Earth, Wind, Fire, and Proto Matter was an excellent band. But <laughs> they were awesome. Yeah, they were. <clears throat> so all reputable scientists have sworn off Proto Matter, and he will die for his transgression. Not like, you know, oh, we're going to kill you because you use Proto Matter, but in more, uh, you know, allegory, like, well, this guy did something bad, so this guy buys it. Not before, of course redeeming himself because the the Klingon was not going to kill David. The Klingon was going to kill Savick and he, you know, sort of, you know, threw himself in front of it. His, his uh, use of proto matter actually is what gets us Spock back. Spock would not have lived without it. And yet, you know, David still has to pay the price and sort of the morality tale. I guess the two questions I have, one facetious, does this mean that Kirk's luck is not hereditary? Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> right. I am curious, though, actually, where do you put David's use of proto-matter next to the risks and liberties that Kirk has taken over the years? Because, I mean, mm-hmm. Savick is, like, ready to not talk to David anymore. If they weren't yeah. the last two sentient beings on the planet and her idiot man-child that is Spock until, you know, they can get, like, sort of his ka back into his body or his katra back into his body. Yeah. She's almost ready to not talk to him because, wow, you use proto-matter? Man, people have died now because you used proto-matter. And I'm not sure yeah. who she's talking about unless she's talking about the people that Khan killed to get the secret of Genesis and now the people that Krug has killed to get the secret of Genesis. Otherwise, I don't think anybody's died. He's just created an unstable planet. 
I mean, it's not exactly his fault that somebody came by to kill other people because of what he made. Right. Although maybe you could argue that it is. Or maybe she's, you know, looking into the future and thinking about all the people that will die at the hands of the Genesis weapon, as as the Klingons choose to call it. But, I mean, where do you put David's shortcut, you know, compared to the 18 years, 17 years of uh, shortcuts we've seen from Kirk? Kirk has gotten lucky. Kirk Kirk has gotten lucky that... The uh, the the plans that he made, the the liberties that he took, the actions that he took, usually worked out in his favor. Um, and also, luckily, just from a storytelling point of view, we didn't get very attached to some of those characters that uh, were on the the bad end of uh, when things went wrong. I mean, I feel like David's shortcut. Well, first of all, it seems a little bit out of character. Because David is the one who is moaning and complaining about Starfleet, saying they're going to take away and they're going to bastardize our hard work, and he's the one who cheated. You know, and which I'm a little curious how he cheated and got this past all the other scientists on regular one who and were Carol working. Marcus, right? His yeah. mom. I know. His mom, who you would think would know when he's lying, having, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> raised David, him. David, did you use proto matter? <laughs> no, mother. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, so uh, he says, though, I mean, he hoped that it was going to work, right? He actually yeah. said that it solved a lot of problems and that it shaved years off of what they were trying to do. Well, it turns out it didn't actually yeah. solve the problems. It just made it look like it solved the problems. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't test it. And maybe if. Well, it, you know, there's a lot of maybes. There's a lot of what ifs. You know, what if Khan hadn't stolen it? What if the Genesis Cave had been allowed to develop? And maybe, what was their uh, their study period on that? Was it hey. going to be six months, a year, two years? Yeah. Wait a minute. Hang on a second. Why didn't the Genesis Cave get unstable? Well, maybe it has. Mm-hmm. But remember, they only she they built it in two weeks. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, okay, but you're you're sort of getting into the minutia of what David did. I'm asking how bad is what David did compared to the stuff that Kirk did? Because you're right, Kirk got away with it the whole time. Yeah. But, I mean, like, where do you put David's sin in this movie compared to the myriad sins that Kirk has committed and, you know, leave off how it ended up? Yeah. Or can well, you? I mean, maybe you can't. That's the thing. It's it's kind of interesting to me, though, that, I mean, you're right. He was he was very much, while well, he made fun of Kirk being an overgrown Boy Scout, David was very much a Boy Scout in Star Trek Two, mm-hmm. And then in Star Trek Three, he's like, yeah, I fudged the numbers. And by numbers, I mean elements. And by yeah. fudged, I mean used. And I'm going to be kicked out of the science club. I mean, I guess if anything, maybe maybe you end up giving Kirk a pass in some of those situations because – if Kirk's in a, a sort of in a battle situation and the question is, do, do I do something unconventional? Do I cheat? And I put that in quotes, you know, do I cheat in order to do the most good, to save the most lives? That's one thing. What David is doing is something that is a scientific study intended to help people, um, which it maybe it doesn't matter if it gets finished tomorrow or next month or next year, but it needs to be done right either way. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think, um, I think you're forgetting though that um, science is hard, John. It, it is. It's very, very hard. You should have known that when he took the job. Yeah. 
Citizen Kane, The Godfather, Star Trek II. With some films, it's silly to ask whether they hold up. With others, the question begs examining. So, what is the verdict on Star Trek III? So as we do, we like to ask each other how these movies hold up. What do they mean? Do the meanings hold up? And uh, how does this sit with us in the end? So Ken, Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, after the heavy, heavy drama of Star Trek II, what do we get? Does this movie hold up for you? Um, I think I want to ask you first, because I'm going to try to convince you that your answer is wrong. That sounds great. Okay. <laughs> All right, boy, this sounds like a lot of fun. Well, no, um, I, mean, I know your answer already, and so I, yeah. I, I, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to. I don't think it'll be as hard as the Omega Glory, but we'll find out. <laughs> okay. Um, to me, it's a not really. Um, it's a middle movie. So if we look at it as a movie, as just a piece of storytelling, its entire purpose is to bridge the gap between the end of the Wrath of Khan. And whatever venture will come next. It's really just about putting the team back together, getting Spock back and letting the audience leave going. Whew, they got back Spock. Um, still, I enjoyed it more when I watched it again. I, I do feel like from a production point of view, it feels a bit TV-ish. Uh, the set of the Genesis planet sometimes looks great, sometimes looks horrible. Um, there are moments in the movie that are really delightful, just really entertaining. Um, like I said, the, the humor, the, the bits where we see the characters as individuals, they're funny, but they're not necessarily jokey and over the top. Um, I think some of the scenes in Space Dock are fantastic. And by the way, Space Dock is huge. Yeah. The fact that you can fit multiple spaceships inside a space dock, and I kept worrying about, well, if you live on one side of space dock, but you work on the other side of space dock, you got to walk all the way around. This is this is a huge, huge thing. It you is massive. You don't think they um, have, you don't think they have transporters on space dock? Well, I mean, is that really an efficient use of energy, Ken? <laughs> you know, sure. And it, and after we saw what happened to Commander Sonak, really, yeah, that's true. Although um, that could that could actually be how they stay fit. Just you know, maybe, maybe. Just, I want to keep uh, my memories, but can you send the one from a week ago? Because right. you know, I, I've put on a couple of pounds. I would like to take them off by the time I get to work in eight seconds. Right. <laughs> um, I think uh, the mood of the movie gets dark and, and literally dark uh, when we're on the Genesis planet. And uh, there are moments of this movie that kind of feel like an ordeal. Um, let's talk about that death scene with David. Um, you know, Shatner has said that it's his best moment as Kirk, that reaction shot of him on the bridge. And I love that moment. I think it was directed just right. Again, you're showing without telling. And that is fantastic. Um, I hated the destruction of the Enterprise when I was a kid, but now I get it. Um, Harv Bennett wanted Spock's death to come early in Wrath of Khan because he wanted it to be shocking like Janet Lee's death in Psycho. So in this movie, the death of the Enterprise serves as the right bookend. You know, it, it continues to raise the stakes the way that the death of Spock raised the stakes for what was going on in that movie. Um, and I, I don't always want my characters to be safe. I want them to face some challenge. Um, so I thought for those reasons, uh, those scenes worked. So here I am heaping praise upon it. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like 
I feel like I, I liked it better than I thought I would. I still don't feel like it's great. It's not a great Star Trek movie, but there were enough things about it that I liked that I didn't want to, you know, run screaming when I had to watch it a second time. Yeah. So does it hold up? Kinda. Eh. It holds up. I think it holds up for Star Trek fans. I mean, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, if you just want to watch the movies, then yeah, you need to see, obviously you need to see Star Trek three. If you're going to go from Star Trek two to Star Trek four. I mean, mm -hmm. it is, I would say that this movie is a pleasant stroll to the next movie. Um, mm -hmm. It is, as you said, a bridge between Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 4. But I don't think it's completely throwaway um, for a number of reasons. We finally, you kept pointing out the fact that, you know, they're, they're, we get to see more of different characters. Mm -hmm. I have hated how McCoy was treated for the first movie and for the second movie. And I love mm -hmm. uh, both the way that the character of McCoy is treated in this movie and the fact that DeForest Kelly gets to do something. He's not just irascible McCoy. He's not just mad, you know? Mm. He's not just making his goofy little puns. When he goes for the, for the, for the, for the nerve pinch in the bar, <laughs> out of yeah. uh, just, I mean, and, and it's, it's, it's reflex for him because he's, he's largely Vulcan right now yeah. in yeah. his head. Uh, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, I love the fact that we get to see his personality and a conflicted personality in him um, I, th I thought that was just amazing. So, I mean, that does a lot to sell this movie for me. Again, if you're already a Star Trek fan, this is not one. Like, I've never seen Star Trek before. Don't start with Star Trek three. <laughs> it's like <laughs> right. watching like it's like watching Act two and Act three of an episode of Star Trek. It just won't work that way. Right. Um, right. And yet there was still, I think, some other. I think there was some relatively important stuff here, even with the retrofit at the beginning of the motion picture. The Enterprise is old at this point. And it's an interesting way to treat a 20-something-year-old ship design, right? Acknowledging that new and shiny, which the Enterprise was when people first saw it in 1966, mm -hmm. it doesn't stay new and shiny forever. Um, it's, it sort of gave them the opportunity to, to change the dynamic of Star Trek, right? We're not, it, it's, not, it's not a Superman movie. I mean, Superman is always going to look a little bit weird because he's got the big ass on his chest and he's got the cape that he's had since 1930-whatever, Right. Mm -hmm. And you may mm -hmm. like it or you may not like it, but either way, Superman always looks the same. And to this point, the future has always looked the same. But the thing is, we've been watching that future for 20 years now. And when you get sort of that sort of almost like the baleen on the Excelsior, you know, yeah, I mean, you, right. you you get a sense that they're not just telling the same story over and over again. And 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 destroying the Enterprise actually kind of does that, too. Yeah. So, I mean, that actually strikes me as an important thing. I mean, certainly it's also a gotcha, and it's got to be gut-wrenching to a lot of people, but it's also, it lets them go ahead and tell new stories, in a way. Right, right. Um, and like we talked about before, I, I think one of the most important things that this movie does is it redefines Kirk, and it redefines the Klingons. Um, all through the original series, um, and, and the animated series, the Klingons were just bad guys. You know, they were, they, yeah, they'd fight, but they would fight just to get something, you know? And mm -hmm. and now, I mean, fighting is what they do. It is their way of life. They are a very different race here. Um, like you pointed out before, Krug kills his wife or her lover. We don't know which. He does that for the good of the Empire. She knows too much now. And it's not yeah. he's not mad at her. 
he's actually sad about it. And he tells her that she will be remembered with honor, which I'm assuming means he's not going to tell anybody that she was looking at stuff that she shouldn't have been looking at. Right. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's, I mean, he, I mean, we redefine the Klingons here. Are we only doing that for however many movies are coming? Or are we doing this for something else that's coming down the road? We just don't know at this point, John, but either way <laughs> we have, we have completely remade the Klingons and that may end up being an important thing uh, in the Star Trek universe going forward. Spoiler alert. Um, Kirk, meanwhile, has outgrown Starfleet. He has, he, I mean, okay, so, so, so Mark, I'm sorry, not Mark, David says, Kirk's an overgrown Boy Scout. And, uh, and Carol says, uh, he was never a Boy Scout. Well, he kind of was. I mean, yeah. he, he was very much Starfleet's man. He was his own man, but he was his own man within the confines of Starfleet. And occasionally he might cut a corner here and occasionally he might misrepresent something here go faster when they were supposed to take more time to get someplace or take an exceedingly long period of time when they could easily get someplace quicker because he's got something else he has to do on the way. There are a bunch of things that he would do, but he always played inside the Starfleet rules. The character of Kirk is now big enough that that Starfleet is not big enough to hold him. And that's kind of a big deal because all Kirk, I mean, like I said before, all Kirk has ever been is a starship captain. All he's ever wanted to be is a starship captain. And we have now hit a point where he's like, you know what? It turns out there is something that's actually more important than this. And I'm going to go, I'm going to go do that now. So I think it's, it's a really good way of putting that, that Kirk has outgrown Starfleet in this movie. That, that, that's the phrase that I think uh, I was looking for earlier to help understand the change in the character. Yeah. 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 I I think that's, and I think that probably is it. Now, Mm -hmm. is this as mind blowing as the ideas behind uh, the motion picture? No. Um, Would I rather watch this or Corbomite Maneuver? I'd still rather watch Corbomite Maneuver (laughs) because it honestly gives me like headier stuff to play with. It gives me more big ideas to play with. Mm -hmm. But this is not Lethal Weapon 4. (laughs) Okay. Or even Lethal Weapon 3. I kind of enjoyed Lethal Weapon 2, honestly. But by the time you get to Lethal Weapon 3 or Lethal Weapon 4, it's, okay, well, we got these characters, we know these characters, and they're going to say some of the same same lines, and we'll throw in, like, one more character, and maybe we'll bring back another old character, and that'll be good for however many millions of dollars. It would have been very easy to just trot out the same characters and do another Alien of the Week thing, right? Yeah. Um, And they didn't. They, They actually, they changed a lot of Star Trek in this movie. And that's why I say if you're a fan, this movie, I mean, this, this movie has to work because this is, not, this is not the same Kirk that was in the last movie, and it's very much going to affect the Kirk that's in the next movie. Um, but, yeah, it's not one that you can put in like, oh, here, new guy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Be totally confused and, and, and watch these characters that you don't care at all about change. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say for people listening to this podcast, it, it works. That, that would be yeah. that would be my argument. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's really well said. I mean, I, I do feel like the movie suffers from pacing and production issues, but as a story, as you know, getting us from well point B to point C, so we can finally move on. Um, you know, it, it's very utilitarian in that way. But um, but I, I love what you've pointed out here about the characters because I think that is kind of critical for more of star trek um i do i I do kind of wonder about the enterprise though the whole idea of uh mothballing the enterprise that that they just refit you know um even if we kind of play fast and loose with the timeline a little bit and we say that the motion picture occurred 
only a few years after the end of the original five-year mission. Right. And that the events of Star Trek II and therefore Star Trek III are years after the motion picture. Well, they are. Uh, but they well, are, yeah, I mean, we know that, though. They are. I yeah, mean, there are more, more years. Uh, right. Then um, it still feels like not a very long time to have had the Enterprise go through a refit before you're going to mothball it. It's been like um, seven or eight years. Dude, seriously, did you see the Excelsior? <laughs> I, I, I hear it's got transwarp drive. Trans, and if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a wagon. Love the fact, by the way, that Scotty, the engineer, Scotty is the one who's like, yeah, not into this new technology. You know, uh, why he, why he not? Sees, yeah, he sees yeah. the Excelsior and he's like, yeah, whatever, the whole grandmother she, thing like you talked about. And then he gets into a talking elevator and is rude to the talking yeah. elevator. <laughs> what I mean, a, what a great line. Really weird that, he is, uh, that he's the one who's like, ah, with the new and the because different. I, I, knew, I knew a Scotty who was excited about the idea of an engine the yep. size of a walnut. That's true. And, and, I, mm-hmm. and I knew, uh, I heard tell of a Scotty mm-hmm. who would like nothing more than to sit in his room and read technical journals, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming he wasn't going back to old technical journals. I would think he was learning about the newest and brightest and shiniest. Right. Yeah, but you know, you get to a certain point, you're like, eh, you know what I like? The ship I know. <laughs> yeah i'm just saying that you know we uh we fly airplanes we we go on ships that are way older than 20 years and um it, it seems a little odd that uh 20 years it's like well time to call it a day i mean it, it takes a lot of resources to build a starship and not to mention you've got a lot of resources in that gigantic space station huge huge and i mentioned that this thing is absolutely gigantic <sighs> <laughs> um, I don't know where you get all the raw materials to build that thing. Um, but it just seems like, you know, you, you want to keep your old ships running until you absolutely can't anymore. That could not have been an inexpensive refit. I know how much it costs to redo a kitchen. A whole starship is going to be even more than that. All right. So so I guess then we have to – did we learn anything from this? I mean, certainly we've learned it costs a lot to refit a kitchen I, I, and a starship oh and a starship that's right that, that may have yeah. actually been the point now that i think of it right. um i'd say i mean the most obvious lesson i think is the one that i started with a few minutes ago uh don't cut corners because that'll get killed mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> David, I mean, was, unless you're kirk right 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 david was greedy you know we can't do that with technology i don't know so. if i'd say greedy i would say he was in a hurry well he was impatient he didn't have people's checkers work, and, and that's the way that science should work. People should check what he does before you detonate a Genesis device. All right. You know? What else? Uh, blood is thicker than water. You know, uh, Kirk bets everything, literally everything, on his friendship with Spock. Even other people. He could have gotten the rest of his crew killed, but he bet all of that on his friendship with Spock. Well, no, they, uh, they bet it. Well, they did, yeah. They all decided. I mean, he actually said that he and McCoy had to go, but nobody else had to, and they're all like, you know, give the word. Yeah, yeah. thought that was interesting. And uh, Kirk turned death into a, quote, fighting chance to live. Uh, Get to see Bones be the eternal optimist there again. Um, I do have a question, though. If uh, if Spock was biologically tied to the planet, Mm -hmm. why why didn't he explode? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, they got him off the planet. 
They yeah, did. Yeah, don't did. don't ask. Yeah. Don't ask. Seriously. I, I kind of feel bad for new Spock. I mean, sure, he's only a few days or maybe a few weeks old, but he's he's forming new memories based on new experience. And, and here comes old Spock to say, nope, nope, no, 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 putting my memories back in you. And I hope they all get along well. I wasn't under the impression that he was uh, really, with the exception of knowing who Savick was, apparently, I wasn't under the impression that he was really building a lot of new memories. She kept talking to him in Vulcan, but... He didn't really show any any sign of understanding. The hand holding, the pond firing. I would, I would say he yeah. got that pretty well. Uh-huh. But but the rest of it, uh, the rest of it, I, I'm not sure. But you know, maybe I missed something there. Maybe there was some little tell that he was that he was starting to pick up on stuff. If, if people picked up on that tell or those tells and wanted to tell us, there are certainly a number of ways that they could do that. Uh, Facebook, Skype, Twitter. The handle is Mission Log Pod in all of those places. You can pick up the phone and call us, 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. Um, a very excited, well, I mean, we've got our usual website, of course, missionlogpodcast.com. And, uh, and the part that I'm excited about, uh, we're now on the front page of trekmovie.com. Yeah, which is kind of neat. So if you if you find yourself there... Uh, you know, doing other stuff, and you're thinking, oh, I should go listen to Mission Log. Well, you don't have to go. You can actually stay right there and listen right there. And if, on the other hand, you have found uh, the Mission Log podcast because you're going regularly to trekmovie.com, hi, I'm Ken, that's John, and uh, and we do this every week. And if you if you send us a comment, we uh, we may use your comment on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Uh, Ken, uh, and just a correction, I'm actually a voice in your head. I knew um, it! And uh, that voice and your voice will be back next week when we talk more Star Trek. Uh, Ken, there's no place like it next week. Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. Some of the music formation log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Save the date. When next we meet, we'll save the whales. transmission.